adults keep saying, we owe it to the young people to give them hope. It's beyond time to take action on climate change. But I don't want your hope. Right now, federal governments are failing to act. The city of Miami Beach is declaring a climate change emergency. The politicians in this building can literally look out their windows and on some days see sea level rise. None of this is a coincidence. I want you to panic. Climate change is a consequence. We are in one of the frontline communities facing the climate crisis, and it is time that we speak up for our residents that are being hurt. Just from a quick little ring we got. I wanted to act as if the house was on fire, because it is. I first became involved with the Clio Institute almost a year ago, once I started learning about the urgency that the climate crisis needed from young people and amounted to my own school walkout. So as a student at FIU, I study environmental science and in all my classes, climate change is sort of touched upon at the end. And I started to realize that no other issue is more ultimate than the climate crisis. And about a year ago also, I became involved with Clio because I attended their communicating climate symposium. In comparison to many of the cities around the world, we are, if not the most, one of the cities that will be affected detrimentally by the climate crisis. So we're talking about sea level rise, saltwater intrusion, intensified hurricanes, losing our access to safe drinking water. So being ground zero for climate change means that we are in a lot of danger and we don't have any time to really waste as a city in comparison to others especially. We're doing this because we feel that no matter how much the youth actually rose up and tackled the problem of climate change in 2019, we aren't necessarily getting the fruitful effects out to the public and the solutions and the knowledge that is needed to cultivate meaningful change. Therefore, House on Fire will act as a catalyst, not only locally in Miami, a ground zero community as Gabby spoke about, but hopefully internationally to inspire a sense of justice and knowledge among the people who will be impacted by climate change, which is, frankly, everyone. There is no resilience in Miami specifically or, or other cities in this country unless everybody has a basic understanding of the crisis. You're listening to House on Fire, a youth-led podcast about the climate crisis with the generation with most at stake. I'm Gabby. And I'm JP. JP is a 17-year-old climate activist who trades in his megaphone for a microphone every week. And Gabby is a 21-year-old college student and educator studying environmental science. So today's episode is very timely and important, and we decided to record it in light of recent events. Nearly three weeks ago from the day that we are recording this, George Floyd, a 46-year-old black man, was murdered at the hands of four police officers in Minneapolis. Floyd was approached by cops for allegedly using a counterfeit $20 bill at a convenience store, and he did not resist arrest. A police officer placed his knee on Floyd's neck for nine minutes, Floyd's final words being, I can't breathe. Floyd's death, caught on tape, has sparked the largest uprising in the United States since the 60s, and it's been led by the Black Lives Matter movement, and people of all backgrounds have protested in the streets calling for Floyd's death, what it is, a racist murder. Allies have 
called for the charges against these off police officers. They've called defunding for the police, the removal of historical racist statues, and an inescapable conversation online. And this civil unrest has brought wins, but it has not and should not stop. So again, in light of these events, we knew we had to record an episode about this because what has shaken the climate movement and the environmental community these past few weeks is the ignored reality of the racial disparities in the climate crisis and the crucial element of intersectional environmentalism in everything that we do. And so today's show is centered on the intersection between climate justice and racial justice because there is none without the other. We are pleased to speak today with two prominent Black voices in both the climate and the Black Lives Matter movement, Sam Grant and Leah Thomas. We are pleased to speak with Sam Grant. He is the executive director of 350.org in Minneapolis, Minnesota, known as MN350. Sam was one of the first climate activists in Minneapolis, in his city, to call for the prosecution of officers responsible for the racist murder of George Floyd. And he has so clearly connected the dots between racial injustice and climate injustice and has spoken out about this to a mainstream, largely white environmental uh, coalition of groups. So... With a PhD in transformative studies, political ecology, Sam has been organizing around the intersections of economic, cultural, and environmental justice since his college years. And he brings decades of nonprofit leadership and transformative organizing to uh, Minnesota 350. So thank you so much, Sam, for joining us today. JP and Gabriella, it's my honor to support the leadership of young people like yourself who are picking up the slack from the failures of us older adults. Yeah, couldn't have said that better myself. Thank you. Thank you, Sam. Um, And yeah, just thank you again for being on because we can only imagine what you and the people you work with and continue your activism with are experiencing right now in Minneapolis and the unrest that's been seen around the country. So the first thing that we'd like to ask you to start this off is what is the atmosphere like there right now? How has it been in the last few weeks? Well, the atmosphere, as I think everybody who has watched the news knows, this thing escalated quickly from a local incident to a global response to the way this incident connects to a long, negative and painful and violent history in terms of anti-Black violence. So that first week, you know, I think people didn't really sleep much and there was a whole lot of concern about how this thing was going to escalate and cause un helpful targeting of people who were upset, who were protesting this racial injustice, and all of the energy was going to be focused on that instead of focused on addressing the core problem of anti-Black violence, including the perpetration of anti-Black violence by police. Very quickly, MN350 responded and said, we have to denounce this and we have to think about going upstream and resolving the question of anti-black violence contributed to by police and say, Mm -hmm. what do we do so that this is no longer a pattern? And one thing that's remarkable is that a lot of mainstream environmental groups who normally would be sitting on the sideline when we raise an issue like this have joined together with us, with the Reclaim the Block, you know, organizing with Black Visions Collective, you know, with Movement for Black Lives and have said, we're on board now. Mm-hmm. We have been on the sideline. We're no longer going to be on the sideline. And so people are pushing for more transformative demands than I have seen in my whole career as an organizer. And that's refreshing. Definitely. And we can, on that note, I can tell that you have a career in organizing. You're 
so articulate in the way that you connect these two issues. And like when we were emailing and get re getting ready for this call, something that you brought up was comparing the quote-unquote theft of black bodies to the theft of carbon, which you called another black body. And I thought that that stood out to me so much. So I'm curious to hear what led you to be so passionate and so knowledgeable about racial justice as it relates to climate justice. Was there a moment in your life or is this something that you've just acquired? Well, I think as a person of African descent born into a social movement family, um, everybody in my family tree going back generations is always organized actively to make this a better world mm -hmm. for all people on the planet. And when I was a little boy, I lived across the street from a company that was putting toxic stuff in the air, and I developed a lifelong you know, problem of asthma. So environmental justice has been a primary issue for me since I was a little boy. And so I've always been sensitive to the connection between environmental and racial justice, because I've noticed throughout my life that this issue keeps coming up. In the early 80s, when I was your age, Gabby, and I was just finishing college, I got an opportunity to work as a graduate fellow um, doing research on sustainable agriculture. And I went to a, a convening of the North American Bioregional Congress, and everybody was excited. And they were talking about all of the opportunities to grow food. You know, wherever we live, we just want as many people as possible to grow as much food as possible. And I raised my hand and I asked the question, well, I live in a poor inner city community where we know our soil is really toxic. So what advice do you have for me on how I can grow food where I live? And mm. the, the room went silent. People had a few ideas, but this is not something they had really thought about. It wasn't, quote unquote, their issue. So there wasn't a whole lot of forthcoming support to help me start an evolutionary process of healing the soil in the inner city. Now, thankfully, that was a long time ago. The um, awareness of this issue and the strategies available to address this issue have advanced very significantly. So we can comfortably grow an abundance of food in inner city environments and be relatively sure that, we're, that the food we're growing is going to be healthy. But there are steps we have to take that people, you know, growing, um, you know, food on healthy soil don't have to necessarily consider. And I think some of the wildest things to notice right now is that the current administration's EPA rollbacks are fueling everything that you're just talking about right now. You know, the um, recent gutting of the National uh, Environmental Policy Act, or, or NEPA, uh, not only puts the environment at risk, at risk, but also black lives as they are disproportionately impacted from poor environmental decision making. And in relation to black lives, what, what are your thoughts on this? Like, what are your thoughts on the current administration's dismantling of, of environmental policies and how they affect people? Yeah, this is a hot racial moment in American history um, where we've got a Republican administration that is unfortunately trying to play race on both sides. It's trying to sidle up to communities of color and say, we've got your back, we're with you. This is the greatest administration ever. And yet at the same time, it has this long stripe of structurally violent policies that they're implementing that are hurting black and brown and native bodies all across this country. And so the rollback of protections is just one of many egregious mm. assaults on our well-being. But I think it's important to acknowledge that as much as we applaud air quality standards, we think it's time for a significant upgrade in the way we think about air quality. Minnesota, as an example, where I'm living and organizing, 
regularly comes out as having some of the best air in the United States. But that best air story is not true if you live in North Minneapolis. We have an environmental justice community that lives in a pocket of structurally, you know, structural bad air because of the way the toxic industries right there get caught by the wind between the community and downtown. That, that toxic wind circulates over that community over a long enough period of time that we have very significant health disparities, higher asthma rates, higher rates of other forms of respiratory illness. And then if you add to that all of the other forms of injustice, including the fact that we have few fresh food outlets that are available in the community, we have higher obesity, higher diabetes, and people are living 11 to 13 years less just because of the zip code they're in. Absolutely. And I think that this is frankly disgusting. It is it is vile the way that we are, you know, putting so much detriment on the lives of others. And, and it really hones in that point that like all lives can't matter until black lives matter because they are the ones that in so many aspects of what we're dealing with right now are being detrimentally affected. And that really brings us into the moment that we're in right now. So I think that, you know, we're facing a conundrum, like a multitude of crises right now. And although there's so much horror and there's so much trauma within this, it also gives us a chance to reconstruct the world that we want to see. We have seen so much engagement throughout this these past like couple weeks and it really makes us completely transform the ways in which we want to operate so you know whether it be climate or or whether it be the issue of of our institutions right now that that are are racist we've gone from making things like criminal justice reform sort of the moderate issue when it comes to the moment that we're in right now. Now things like abolition have become some somewhat political common sense. And it's interesting to see, and I want to ask you this, being an organizer, what what could the climate movement learn from the current moment that we're in right now with the racial question? That's a great question, JP. And I am sitting in regular dialogue with leaders of our Black Visions Collective, and we're looking at creative ways we can respond to this moment really leading with the intersection of racial justice and climate justice. And among the things that we're you know, looking at doing is a thorough examination of the Green New Deal that I know, JP, with your role in the Sunrise Movement in Miami, you've played a role in that. And we're saying, great, we love the Green New Deal. We want to try and really promote a deeper assessment and strategy within the Green New Deal that lifts up a way in which we can center the objectives of um, Native, um, you know, the Latinx, African American, and Southeast Asian communities and make sure that we're um, on the leading edge of the beneficial stream of opportunities in the emerging green economy. Because right now, the green economy is sort of mirroring the historic pattern of structural racism in terms of who's getting the business opportunities, who's getting the loans from the banks, who's getting the job opportunities. So we're really trying to, to, to nail down a strategy so that as we organize for the Green New Deal, we are shovel ready in all of our BIPOC communities to make sure we have folks ready to run the businesses, ready to um, do the community education, ready to engage in the career pathways, ready to sort of paint the path toward this renewable society that we're all dreaming of, but don't really know how to quite imagine and pull off. So one thing that's exciting right now, and JP, you sort of mentioned this, is that instead of just 
offering the critique of what's wrong, people are now really stepping up with a much greater level of ambition and imagination to define what's possible and then organize for that. So that's really exciting. Yeah, and we've seen that here in Miami as well. Um, just the other day, one of the committees among our commissioners had a meeting, a virtual meeting, and they allowed people to call in and voice their opinions on the funding of the police, and particularly our department here in Miami. And we saw so many people, more than people usually do to attend these commissioner meetings, come out. So it's it's so clear that people are activated now. And although it might have, and I hate to say this, it might have had taken a racist, tragic murder of George Floyd, people are activated now. And we hope that this sustains and that this is not a fad or a trend. Well, the other thing that I want to just sort of encourage people to pay attention to is I see this pattern. A crisis happens for one week, for two weeks, maybe even for a month. There's a lot of hot creative energy mobilized to be responsive. But as the crisis begins to seem to dissipate, because people aren't thinking about the connection of all of these issues together, people fall back to their own default of just being an individual. And in an earlier podcast, I think I heard you, Gabriella, talk about how important it is to be an activist and not just take an individual approach to solutions. I think that what we have to do is say that the hope that matters, that registers, is hope that's activated in day-to-day action through social movements. So I think it's important for everybody who cares about these issues to never relent and contribute your daily energy to it as much as you can and bring all of your friends and all of your family into this movement building with you because it's really an all hands on deck movement between now and 2030 to solve the climate crisis in a way that promotes a healthier, more thriving future for all people in all species. Yeah, and I think that your message of hope perfectly leads into the next question I'm going to ask you, which is a question that I ask most guests like right before we end, which is if there's one takeaway that you want a listener to get from what you just said right here, what do you want it to be? The thing that hits me in the gut pretty regularly is when people hear us in the African-American community or in the American Indian community say that what happens on our black and brown bodies is related to the climate crisis and people say no The issue of climate change is so urgent, we can't worry about those justice issues. Those have to be secondary. The most important thing I want people to understand is that the best way to address climate change is to do climate change work in a way that engages all people in connecting what's primary to them to what's primary in terms of bringing down greenhouse gases and promoting a livable future on the planet for all people. So for me, that's the message. Do your part to connect strongly racial justice and climate justice. Then we all win. And that's the future we deserve. Definitely. Thank you. I couldn't agree more, Sam. Thank you again for being on. We really appreciate your insight. Thank you, Gabriella. And thank you, JP. And keep up your amazing work. I highly appreciate you. Thank you so much. Have a great day. You do the same. Take care. Okay. Sam was so, so, so good. Um, I feel like I was, it was so vivid listening to him actually, like I felt like we got to get the experience of what it must be like in Minneapolis right now, but he perfectly tied that back to his work and what needs to be done in the climate movement. And I'm so happy we got to speak to him. Absolutely. And like everything that he was describing, everything that he said was just so on point and like 
we're about to have Leah on, which is also amazing. But I just think that before we go to that, it's like almost the mission that this specific episode is doing is like crucial to how we can be better allies as non-black people, you know? And it's like, you know, at some points, just shut up and listen and give over the mic. And I'm excited to hear what Leah has to say too. Definitely. Today we're joined by Leah Thomas, a young climate and environmental activist better known as Green Girl Leah. In the past few weeks, she has sparked the conversation online around intersectional environmentalism with a beautiful, informative post that she made that reads, Environmentalists for Black Lives Matter, over and over. Hundreds of popular environmentalists and major environmental groups have reposted her graphic, which has since gone viral online. With a degree in environmental sciences, not only does she raise awareness online, but quite importantly, she does the work. Leah partners with businesses to bring intersectional environmentalism into brand mission statements, strategies, and special projects. She has also worked closely as an eco-communicator with Patagonia, and we are so, so pleased to have you with us today. So thanks so much for coming on. And I mean, first, I just want to ask, like, how have you been feeling in the past few weeks? Yeah, thank you all so much for having me. I'm so stoked about this podcast. Um, it's been a really interesting couple of weeks. It's kind of hard to... I'm excited because now I have this really cool platform and so many people that seem really dedicated and interested in something that I care about so much, the intersections of social justice and environmentalism. But it's also there's kind of this deep sadness that I feel in the background because the reason why people are following me was a post that I created, no matter how cute the colors were, it was a call to stop the killing of Black people in the United States and also mm -hmm. Black and Brown people all over the world. So I'm very excited for the new platform, but I'm also still conflicted about the trauma that is happening specifically to my community, the Black community. And there's a weird feeling of being given this platform because of that issue. And it's, yeah, just some a lot of conflicting feelings, but I'm very excited that this message is out there. Definitely. And um, I we definitely want to speak a little bit more about that as the conversation goes on, because that growth and followership and the presence you now have must be a little bit burdensome, especially in the time we're living in. It's it's so tragic what we're seeing. This isn't fun. This isn't something that we want to do. It's not so trendy. It's no. not trendy. It's not a fad. Mm -hmm. So that's something we definitely want to get into. But to begin, we just want to learn a little bit more about you. So I actually saw an interview where you spoke about how the murder of Michael Brown in Missouri sparked a change in you and, and your view on environmentalism. Could you tell us a little bit more about this? Definitely. I I mean, I was, I've always kind of been in predominantly white spaces. I went to a private school where I had to kind of drive 30 minutes away, or my parents did because I was a child, so I couldn't drive. But we had to go 30 minutes away to this very affluent private school um, when I was from a suburb and my parents were more middle class. And I was always in predominantly white spaces. And I didn't really, I kind of hid from my black identity. I didn't want it to be something that was really a big part of my life because I just wanted so badly to blend in. And then I went to college in a similar environment at Chapman University in Orange County. 
predominantly white space, very similar to my private school. And I tried my very best to kind of hide from my identity. And I feel bad for the younger version of myself for feeling like I needed to do that. But in many ways, it felt like a protection, a protective measure that I was doing. And then I couldn't hide from it anymore. I went home for summer break back to St. Louis. And that was when, unfortunately, there was the murder of Michael Brown, who was just a couple circles of friends away from the people that I knew in my neighborhood. And it was just so traumatizing, the entire aftermath of it. Firstly, his death, the way that it was done um, excessively, and also his body laying in the street for so long. And it just, I was shocked by the blatant disregard of Black life in that moment. And then I had to go back to school and I changed my major to environmental science and policy. And while I was in my classes, I was distracted. And how could I not be? When I turned on the TV, I remember there was one time I was getting my hair braided and we were watching CNN and then I saw my parents in a protest while I was getting my hair done and I can't, I couldn't look away from it and I had this just eye-opening experience during my environmental science classes when I was also learning about how black and brown communities are exposed to poor air quality and water quality at higher rates. And all of this just seemed interconnected and I wanted to get a better understanding of how I could make the world a better place so there wouldn't be another Michael Brown. And unfortunately, through so much heartbreak, there have been so many more. Mm. So in 2020, I just... I, I couldn't do it anymore as an environmentalist. I couldn't walk beside my non-Black environmentalists at climate protests and do it without knowing that they would also support my life because I was marching for salmon. I was, I was marching for polar bears. I was marching for other endangered species, but then to have my community not show that same support for me and my life, I, I knew something needed to change. Yeah, absolutely. And and you go back to like, and I'm like, I'm sitting here in awe because I'm hearing everything that you're describing with vivid imagery. And one of the things that I've appreciated in the past few weeks going to these actions myself and showing up for Black Lives is that I've seen so many of the people who are organized for climate with there. And it just really mm -hmm. brings me a sense of hope as to, oh my God, yes, these people get it. These people actually get it. And as we're like going across Miami, lots of the chants that we hear are very powerful. And, and one of them is, you know, I can't breathe, a, a line that mm -hmm. refers to the words uttered by George Floyd and countless others, other victims of police murders. And in another interview that I saw with you, you have an interesting take on this line of I can't breathe and how it connects to environmental racism. Could you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, I found this kind of triple meaning because when I was thinking of those words, I was also thinking about how so many black and brown communities across the nation and across the world are exposed to higher rates of particulate matter. Um, so essentially poor air quality, which can cause respiratory illnesses and higher asthma rates and other illnesses. So I was thinking it's not fair that there are people in this country that during a pandemic, firstly, that is that has corona that attacks the respiratory system. So that's one thing. And then also they're exposed to poor air quality at higher rates, so they can't breathe in that regard properly like everyone else. And then to 
have to deal with police brutality and unlawful killings and literally not be able to breathe and say that as their last words before death. It just, there's these three things that are happening right now that all just feel so unjust. I know Corona is none of our fault, but these other two things are, and these are two things that we can change and we need to allow people the right to breathe and not only breathe, but thrive in an ecosystem that is healthy and safe because how can you, there's so many other issues when you think about crime and education and equality and things like that. The, the base is being able to drink clean water, breathe clean air. And if those two things aren't there, how can anyone really have a chance? Right. Definitely. And that's what we just what you just spoke about right there is like the perfect example of how important it is to talk about race when we talk about climate and the environment. And with that said, I would really like to hear your definition of intersectional environmentalism, given what we're talking about and your posts, etc. How do you define that? And could I kind of go off of that? What are you doing now to drive that? So intersectional environmentalism is an inclusive version of environmentalism that advocates for both the protection of people and the planet. It identifies the ways in which injustice is happening to marginalized communities and the earth are interconnected. It brings injustices done to the most vulnerable communities and the earth to the forefront and does not minimize or silence social inequality. Intersectional environmentalism advocates for justice for both people and the planet. And I wrote this, not passive aggressively, but sure, to (laughs) the environmental community. And if this language didn't exist as a communications person, one of the coolest things is to be able to introduce a concept to people. And if it didn't exist, or if this definition wasn't jotted down, because I'm sure people have used this terminology before, I just thought I, I might as well give it a shot introduce it into the dialogue and it seems like it has been very widely accepted and I'm really really excited about that. And on that note, how can this new environmental climate movement better acclimate to what we need right now and how can we be better allies for black lives? Yeah, I think something that's kind of strange to me again is through my environmental science classes um, I started to realize that the environmental movement would be nothing if it weren't for a lot of indigenous wisdom and a lot of different cultural practices from so many black and brown communities and communities that have historically and culturally had such better relationships to the land Um, so it feels wrong to me that environmentalism pulls so much from that indigenous and black and brown wisdom but I've never really seen that put to the front or I've seen it done in maybe Mm -hmm. a way that felt kind of like it was appropriative but never just blatantly saying okay our basic understanding of ecosystems ecology and being able to you know have a carrying capacity um in an ecosystem is basically based off of the way so many indigenous people have, you know, had a better relationship to the land, but I digress. So I think to correct and right that wrong, um, what we need to do moving forward as environmentalists is bring those voices to the forefront because those are the voices that deserve to be there. And we shouldn't just pick and choose what we like from those cultures and actually listen and allow them to lead because, I mean, we haven't really allowed 
people of color to lead in that regard. And we see where not allowing people of color to lead has gotten us. So why not take a chance and just see? Um, so that's how that's how I feel about that. And I think one of the things that's been really incredible about having this platform is I'm seeing all over Instagram so many Black creators just gaining this insane amount of following from people. And I think we're on the right track. It's time to amplify those voices and not do what we did in the past as environmentalists and go into communities as a savior and say, this is what I think you need Mm -hmm. and trying to advocate for them and Instead saying, okay, who are the people in your community that are already doing this work and their voices aren't being heard? And how can I support them and amplify their voice and not how can I be the voice for these people? And I think those are just a couple things that could change to make environmentalism a little bit more equitable and also intersectional. Definitely. And you know, we're in this moment where it feels like, as JP mentioned earlier, all these climate activists we surround ourselves with are in line and understand what we're talking about right now, that we need to be allies and we need to put these voices towards the front like you had mentioned. But a part of me is a little bit worried that it's going to fade away. And so yeah. I'm I'm wondering from your perspective, how does it feel to see For example, these huge, really mainstream environmental groups reposting your picture, do you feel that their solidarity is going to be sustained or that this is just performative? Um, I think some of it is definitely performative. And I've seen that from like inside of organizations and knowing that it's very performative. Um, But people recognize what's genuine and what's not pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. The demographics of the world in the United States are changing. Um, Gen Z is you know, the most woke, I don't like that <laughs> word that much, but they're, they're so woke and they, they can see through all the, you know, BS. So I'm really mm-hmm. excited for this next generation to hold these organizations accountable. I've thought about exactly what you're saying. And I decided to create this intersectional environmentalist platform with a couple um, other environmental activists and Basically, there's it's going to be a resource to find different information about intersectional environmentalism uh, with different issue areas, but then also companies can sign on and environmental organizations can sign on to take the pledge. But in order to take the pledge, they don't know this yet, but I'll tell you, and they'll get this very soon in an email, <laughs> then they need to meet with us at least once a right. month if they want to be on our page. As and they, they need to be very... Um, They need to be very accountable and they need to show us what they're doing to improve their organizations and be very transparent about maybe their failings. And we're going to check in with them at least once a year and hold them accountable. And I think a lot of organizations just need those accountability metrics and they need someone within their organization or outside of their organization to hold them accountable for actually changing. Yeah. And I think from that, when you're referencing Gen Z and when you're talking about the changing fabric of the American political system and like the society we're living under, one of the Mm -hmm. things that you're really talking about is that whether it be and this is like another parallel, which is amazing, which is whether we're thinking of like policing systems and racist institutions nowadays or whether we're thinking of the institutions that are creating climate change, which are interlinked and very much the same. We're not 
like this generation is not messing around with trying to fix a broken world. We literally want to create a new one. We're we've accepted that, you know, what's not working right now is just not something to put effort into. We're just going to make something new. Like, screw it. It's mm -hmm. out of the window. We're creating something new. And I think that's wonderful. And I guess on that note, you know, just on the basis of everything that we've touched upon this amazing conversation and thanks so much for coming on. What if there's one takeaway that a listener right here, uh, you, you want them to take away, what would it be? Um, this might sound pretty hippy-dippy, and it is because I'm pretty hippy-dippy, but <laughs> I think everything is just so interconnected, and we don't have to look at, I mean, it's more digestible when we're able to look at, say, the criminal justice system, and then also, you know, environmental justice, and also education reform. But I think it's important not to get lost in those different issue areas and to also realize like the greater overarching societal issues of inequality and systems of oppression. So when you're talking about those different issues, it's okay to realize that they are interconnected. And I think the... So, for example, sometimes when I talk to people about like racism in this country, I'll have a lot of people that fight back and say, no, 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 no. No, no. Actually, race isn't that big of a deal. The big deal is, you know, economics and wealth mm. and wealth disparities. It actually doesn't have much to do with race. And I've heard that so many times in poli sci classes. And I've heard that so many times, mostly from like white people. Um, <laughs> and they want to just tell me over and over that race isn't actually as big of a deal as I'm making it. And all has to do with the economy. And I usually just say to them, it could be both, you know. Mm -hmm. It could be both. Absolutely. And those things yep. go together and it's okay. And you don't have to be defensive about maybe one of those things playing a role. Um, and I think the more that we're able to see that these things are interconnected, the more we can actually make progress because I don't want to fight with someone and I won't because I'm tired, but I don't want to fight with someone that wants to tell me that their hypothesis that wealth inequality is the number one contributor to social injustice when instead they can focus on that issue area and I'll focus on environmental justice and we can work together for the same cause because they're not they're not as different as I think people might make them seem. Yeah, of course. Um, and I definitely agree that once I've once I realized how everything was so interconnected, like you had said, um, my understanding of the environment, my understanding of the world, our economic model, everything just opened up so much. And I would just like to stress what you said because that was so on point. Mm -hmm. And with that said, thank you so much, Leah. It was a pleasure thank speaking you so to much. you. Um, thank you. We wish you the best. Thank you. You all are so awesome. Yep. <laughs> Thanks so much. This has been House on Fire, a youth-led climate podcast powered by the Clio Institute. Your continued support and sponsorship is what powers conversations like these. So make sure you listen to House on Fire on all your favorite platforms for podcasts, including Spotify and Apple Podcasts. And make sure to rate, review, and subscribe. Follow us at House on Fire Podcast on Instagram. An All Points West production recorded at Unicorn Fire Radio in Miami.